This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I will share my anti-racism transformation journey. Then I will welcome in Pastor Dean J. Seal as we discuss anti-racism and its critical role in the future of the United States and the world, the importance of interfaith collaboration, and finally, the influence of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., while also previewing ARC's first book club event series, Dr. King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail, starting next Tuesday, November 24th. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzo Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. ARC is a coalition of dedicated people committed to eradicating racism and spreading anti-racism throughout our communities, our countries, and the world. This is the Arc of Change. So in my last episode, 45 is out, what now? I briefly reviewed the 2020 United States presidential election results and the implications, and more importantly described what we must do now to help transform this country by eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism with the arc of change. I explained that at arc, we have a two-phase strategy to treat the cancer of racism, one short-term and one long-term. The first phase is the immediate and urgent treatment of the cancer of racism by removing the most visible embodiment of the malignancy of racism, which was voting out of office, the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. And we did that. We accomplished that goal. But as I said, that's not the end. Trumpism still lives. So what we must do now is implement the second phase in our ARC strategy, which is committing to the long-term treatment that's required to rid ourselves of the cancer of racism and keep it in remission. This means doing the hard work of transforming ourselves to be anti-racist, then transforming those in our networks to also become anti-racist and join ARC and do the same with their networks and so on and so on, to spread anti-racism through the network exponential growth effect. And in this way, we all take a stand together and commit to eradicate the cancer of racism once and for all, and keep it in remission by relentlessly spreading anti-racism. So that is the what to do now, as I explained. It's about committing to the grind, the hard work that ARC is all about, transforming ourselves to be anti-racist and anti-hate and transforming our networks to do the same thing. This is the work that only you and only I or we together can do. And if we all do this one person at a time, one network at a time and influence those in our networks to do the same, we will change this country and we will change the world. So, In this episode, 
we're going to start discussing and practicing how to start this process of transformation. First, at the personal level, and then with the people in our networks. At ARC, we believe that this transformation starts with education. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. Therefore, one of the most important aspects of ARC is to educate. And we'll do this by providing access to support and resources with focus on addressing the following three critical areas. The first is erasing the ignorance. The ignorance that we have about racism and hate that ranges from the unconscious to the conscious but accepted and ignored through to the structural, the systemic, and the institutional and everything in between. Remember that Dr. King also said that nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. So addressing this first is of utmost importance. This is coming to the realization that racism is not only about using derogatory terms or having prejudgments of people based on their appearance, their background, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation, and the like. It's not just about negative emotional reactions you have to people's appearances, but it's also about the unconscious and the non-emotional. But when you still know that you're taking advantage of a certain group standing or benefiting from a certain group based simply on perceived difference, whether it's racial or other, it could be a feeling or an expectation that you deserve something more than someone else without realizing that it's because of your race. It's also about simply opening your eyes, opening your ears and your conscience to what is happening to others all around you, but that you simply don't see because it's not happening to you. This is the acknowledgement or that woke moment of realizing that racism actually does exist, even though you have never seen it or you have not personally experienced it. Look, most of us have never seen a live coronavirus cell. And although there's a global pandemic of epic proportions happening, most of us have not personally experienced the coronavirus. But clearly, we know that it exists. Sadly, racism and hate are global pandemics of even larger proportions. They've been around a lot longer than the coronavirus, and they've killed hundreds of millions of people more than the coronavirus. We must erase the ignorance about racism and hate. The second is building intelligence. Intelligence in the form of knowledge and capability and understanding anti-racism. And that not being racist is not the same as anti-racist. Not being racist is rejecting the idea that there should be benefits for one racial group over another simply based on some perceived racial difference and believing that since you believe that and since you may live by that, that society actually operates that way and that therefore everyone is treated fairly, everyone's treated the same, there is no difference. The anti-racist goes much farther than that by educating themselves on the plight and the condition of others, 
and investigating if there truly is equal treatment and equal access. Or if one group, including the group that they belong to, that is privileged and is receiving some special grace or some special circumstance above another group simply based on race or some other perceived difference. They uncover the built-in roadblocks and walls that others face but are invisible to the privileged and actively work to drive equity by disclosing, attacking, and breaking down the structures of systemic racism and waking up other people of privilege to do the same thing. The anti-racist recognizes that the ingrained structures of racism built into our society and the systemic racism built into our conscience and our subconscious won't simply go away on their own unless someone does something. And third, developing character. Character in the form of confidence, resolve, and determination to act on the knowledge and capability you build to continually and sustainably eradicate racism and spread anti-racism. In other words, once the anti-racist recognizes those ingrained structures of racism built into our society and the systemic racism built into our conscience and our subconscious that won't go away unless someone does something, they now bravely and reliably become the someone who does something. They consistently speak out, stand up, and take action to break down the structures that support racism And they do what might feel toughest of all, challenge and influence those closest to them, those in their personal networks to also reject racism and hate and embrace anti-racism and take action to spread it. I also mentioned in my last episode that after the election of 45, my wife and I felt like it was time that we had to do something. This was the beginning of our transformation. Visit us at joinarc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. As I mentioned, this was the beginning of our transformation. We had not been heavily involved in politics before 2017. My wife had door knocked for President Obama's campaign in 2008, 2012, and I had donated to his and other campaigns, but that was the extent of it. I never talked about politics, not at work, not to friends, not even to family. But as soon as 45 was elected, we both knew immediately that this was the time. We had to change. We had to take a stand. We had to stand up. We had to speak out. We had to take action against this hateful message in this hateful administration. We made it our top priority to convince everyone that we knew, and even those we didn't know how dangerous this man was, and that we must all stand against him and start organizing now to make sure that in 2020, he would be voted out. We became very visible in the community. We stood up as leaders. We started taking stands publicly. We started speaking out, taking action. I ran for office and my wife became my campaign manager. She also became known as one of the best grassroots community organizers in the state of Minnesota. We challenged our friends and our family to get engaged as well because we needed everybody to make sure that 45 was going to be out of office in 2020. 
So we focused all our energy at the state and national level because we thought that things in our community were okay. As you can probably tell from my podcast cover art, I'm an African-American man, but my wife, she's Caucasian of Italian and British Isles descent. So our kids, who are all adults now, are biracial. As I mentioned, in 2018, I decided to run for office to help with the midterm push against Trumpism. At that time, we had been living in Chaska, Minnesota, predominantly white and heavily conservative suburb, for the past 15 years. And we had very little issues. In fact, I'd say that we were fairly happy. It was a good experience. The kids were adjusting really well. They enjoyed their schools. They had a lot of friends. We had good friends. And we enjoyed our neighbors. But I learned something and I was awakened, I'd say, in the last few days of my 2018 campaign for State House. I remember very clearly I was door knocking with a campaign volunteer named Amy, a middle-aged white lady originally from Chaska. But she had been living in California for the past 20 years or so. She had just moved back to Chaska with her six-year-old biracial daughter. She was half African-American as well, like our kids. As Amy and I went door to door, we started talking between houses. And I remember Amy telling me that in her opinion, in her experience since coming back to Chaska, it was a very racist place. She said that this was her hometown and she remembered it very well from when she grew up here, when she went to high school here. And she said that, yes, it was racist then, but she said that now it was much worse. She said that it clearly had something to do with the election of Trump in terms of emboldening racists to show their true colors. But she was really, really upset with what she felt was the sadder issue, which was the complicity of most of the other white people in the community who just let it go. In her opinion, many of them just wouldn't say anything or they just pretended that racism wasn't there. And she said that in the school systems is where she saw it most clearly. I remember saying to Amy, Amy, that that does not sound like the Chaska that I know. Are you sure you're not misreading some situations or mishearing some conversations or just seeing some isolated uh, incidents maybe? She was adamant that she was not. She said this was not isolated. This was pretty widespread. In fact, she gave me very specific examples with specific names of people. And she talked about several incidents that she was aware of at the schools and that she made the administration aware of, but was simply dismissed or ignored. I remember telling my wife, who um, had volunteered in the schools for, geez, over 10 years. She had great relationships with school administrators and the teachers. She knew everybody. She was very surprised by what Amy had to say. So she asked Amy about it, and Amy told her the exact same thing and gave her even more examples. And Amy passionately challenged both of us, my wife and I, to open our eyes and see what was happening in our community all around us. Here was this white lady telling me, a black man, that yes, the Trump administration, that she said you're fighting against Donzel, that you're actively and passionately pushing so hard to make sure they get out of office because you believe they're racist, that you are right. They are racist. Are they emboldening racists? Absolutely. 
Are they having people spread more hate? Yes. But she said, you have got to wake up and see the racism right here in front of you, right here at home. I have to be honest and say that I was still a little skeptical. But it wasn't very much longer that I, I, I kind of was shown the truth. It was about a month later that the first racial and hate motivated incident in a series of sad and traumatic incidents happened uh, right here in Chaska. These were incidents that actually made state and national news involving Chaska schools. First one occurred with two white students shoot, showed up at a Chaska High School football game in blackface and no administrator stopped them at the gate. No one stopped them while they were in the game. No one even stopped them after a few brave kids of color, students of color, approached administration and asked them to do something about it. The two students in blackface still were not approached by administration. There had been several incidents before, actually, that I remember. But I dismissed them at the time because my kids didn't say much about it. They didn't seem to be affected. I assumed they were isolated. But because Amy relentlessly pushed me to open my eyes, she woke me up to the truth. This incident was clearly different. My ignorance about racism and hate in my town had been erased. I started talking to more people in our community, especially people of color with kids in the schools. And I started talking to more teachers and asking them specific questions about racism and hate in the schools and the administration's response or lack thereof. I also spoke to many of the kids themselves. What I heard from everyone was very sad. Sad because it illustrated a consistent pattern of racism and hate in our schools. And it also illustrated a pattern of the administration. Not listening, either not caring, or just simply not doing anything. I did some research to validate the anecdotal evidence I was hearing from teachers and parents and found that our school district was actually much more diverse than I had even thought, which was a good thing. But on the other side, the disparities I discovered between children of color and white majority students in our district were some of the worst in the state. And because Minnesota has some of the worst disparities in the country, that meant that our school district had some of the worst disparities in the country. We had among the lowest representation of teachers of color, among the worst disparities in learning opportunity and learning achievement, and the worst disparity in discipline occurrence and severity levied out. From Amy's initial push, I had built much better and holistic intelligence about anti-racism to better recognize the structural and systemic racism that was ingrained in our school district and thus in our community. And now I understood that the conscious and subconscious attitudes of the school board and district leaders needed to be changed and barriers to equity and inclusivity needed to be addressed and broken down. You know, for the most part, my kids had done well in the schools. They had good experiences. But this was not just about my kids. This was about all kids. And in fact, it hurt me to learn from my 27-year-old son when this was all happening that he did 
experienced much of this same racism that we were just now hearing about at that time. He just didn't want to make a big deal of it. And it made me think of all the parents and kids that were dealing with all these issues without support. So I decided to partner with Amy and start attending the school board meetings to speak out and stand up and challenge them to take action on these issues. You know, I'd never been to a school board meeting for any topic. I had um, never really spoken out publicly about racism in the community before. Even during my campaign for state house, this was not a topic that really ever came up. But now I was aware of the situation. I knew that it was time for me to leverage my character, my credibility, my platform, and my leadership to eradicate racism and spread anti-racism for the benefit of these kids in our community, regardless of the consequences. I knew that there would be friends and community members who would be uncomfortable with my public stance. I knew that it was going to strain some relationships because this is Minnesota and people in Minnesota avoid conflict. They don't like to talk about tough topics like race. They don't like to hear people that they know speak publicly about something that's controversial. But as Dr. King famously said, it's always the right time to do what's right. And standing up for these kids was the right thing to do. And not just the kids of color but the white kids as well, because allowing racism and hate to not be challenged in schools hurts everyone, all the children. So I started going to the school board meetings to speak out. First, just Amy and me, and we both spoke out about racism in the schools and the community. Then the next month, there were more issues. So more people woke up to what was going on and attended the meetings, including my wife, and came to speak out about the problem of racism in our schools. Over the next few months, there were a series of serious race-related incidents serious enough to be covered by state and national news outlets, and more and more people started attending the meetings and standing up and speaking out and demanding action during open forum, which had to be extended from 45 minutes to multiple hours each meeting just to accommodate the crowd. A student group made up predominantly of kids of color met with school administrators and also attended and spoke out at school board meetings to share their experiences and demand change. A community social justice group called Chaska Indivisible made equity in the schools a top priority and consistently attended and spoke out at school board meetings as well. And a grassroots racial justice group called Residents Organized Against Racism, or ROAR, formed to organize parents and allies to attend school board meetings and speak out to demand change in the schools. It became clear that a movement was created, a movement large enough to attract the attention of Twin Cities news outlets who started covering the school board meetings in Carver County. Now, there's still a lot of work to do, but there have been several changes in the right direction since we began this campaign in November 2018. The equity director position was elevated to cabinet level within the school district, and the person hired to fill this position, to my knowledge, became the highest ranking African-American hired to that point in the school district's history. 
the new equity director led the development of the first equity strategic plan for the school district and formed the first parent equity advisory council. And the district recently made even more history and hired the first African-American, an African-American woman to be its superintendent. Additionally, two of the parents who were among the group of regulars to speak out against racism and hate in the schools ran for school board in 2020 and one of them won one of the three seats available while the other had a strong showing finishing fourth. It is also very important to note that Chaska, the largest city in our school district, voted no to 45, gaining national attention and being profiled in the New York Times as one of the longest standing historic Republican cities in the country that flipped from Republican to Democrat in the 2020 presidential election. I'll reiterate what I said over the last several episodes. This is not about Republican versus Democrat or red versus blue. This is about values. This is about right over wrong. So tremendous progress has been made on the side of right. And we started to break down the structural and systemic racism and hate in our schools and thus in our communities. Like I said, we lost some friends and some family relationships were strained. But the bottom line for us was that if there ever was a time to make a choice to stand for our values and to fight for right over wrong, that time had come. Not just to get 45 out of office, but to stand up for our children, all the children in our schools, and all the folks in our community. I knew that there still would be some people not very happy with us, but I didn't expect what happened one evening earlier this summer. That story, next. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. So it was a Monday night, July 27th. I remember it well because I was preparing for my weekly Zoom call that evening. We started getting frantic texts from friends stating that we need to turn on the Victoria City Council meeting that was streaming because the mayor was going on a tirade uh, and, and saying things about us. Now, this same mayor had been accused by many people in the area for racially charged overtones in his rhetoric leading up to the state Senate Republican primary. And he was reading this prepared statement at the beginning of the locally televised city council meeting. And in this rambling tirade, once we started watching it, he complained about some of the blowback that he felt was unfair that he was getting for what many people said, again, was racially charged rhetoric. Of all the things he complained about, though, and the they, the people, these troublemakers who were causing him problems, he only called out two specific names. My wife's and mine. And he literally referred to us as communists. Now, I've never met this guy in my life. I don't know him. Like I said, I don't live in Victoria. I live in Chaska. I wouldn't know who he was if he walked by me in the street. Even now. Clearly, he knew who I was, though. And of course, he tried to claim 
in, in this, this prepared statement that he was not a racist. In fact, he claimed to be one of the least racist people around. But we all know that people who say that are simply trying to make something that is absolutely not true, make it fact by stating it and hoping somehow magically it becomes fact. But they can't hide who they truly are. Let's consider the history of the word communist and its use to denigrate black and brown leaders. You see, calling a black and brown American a communist is one of the oldest indirect racial attacks in the United States against black and brown leaders who speak out, especially those who speak out on race, equality, and social justice. It literally goes back a hundred years. And everyone who uses it knows exactly what they are doing. As I said, there are many, many other people besides my wife and I who spoke out, stood up and took action and who were responsible for the really good progress in our school district and our community. But of all those people, he decided to target us. Sadly, my friend Amy who I spoke about earlier at length, passed away a few years ago. But I'm guessing that if she were still here, she would have been proud that they called us communists because it meant that we got their attention by truly driving social and racial justice and positive change. Regardless, it's still a fact that this has been an active dog whistle tactic. Like I said, for literally 100 years. If you don't believe me, go back and check. It started in 1919 after World War One, as African-American veterans returned home from Europe and were brave enough to demand to be treated as equal citizens in the country they put their lives on the line for. A 24-year-old federal field agent named J. Edgar Hoover started looking for reasons other than the obvious to explain why black people were demanding better treatment and fighting back against oppression, as if fighting for your dignity and your rights, and in most cases, fighting for your literal life, wasn't explanation enough. He investigated and searched for a communist connection that he thought was there, which of course was not. And when he became head of the newly created FBI, he continued this ridiculous obsession. But now he saw that he could use it as a way to subvert black leadership or tarnish the image of black or brown leaders or celebrities who spoke out and even white celebrities and leaders who dared to sympathize with the plight of the black community. If you were a black leader or a white leader with the gall to stand up speak out and push for action to drive racial change in this country, you were labeled a communist and you were branded as un-American. Which of course shows the idiocy of this because fighting for equal rights for all Americans should be the most American thing that you can do. But it also showed the genius in this tactic because it appealed to the racist who believed that America is meant to be equal for white people only. It also sent a message to those white people who considered themselves to be not racist because it warned them that they could be branded as communists 
if they spoke out. And it also labeled those black leaders who did speak out and who did push for change as radicals who simply couldn't wait for due course and should not be trusted with the future of America. And it didn't matter how you approached it. You could be Malcolm X and challenge in a fiery way. Or you could be Mary McLeod Bethune and have a friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt and work with FDR professionally. Or you could be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and challenge with love, peace, and nonviolence. It didn't matter. You still could be investigated and labeled as a communist. You see, one of the key differences in people who state that they're not racist and those who strive to be anti-racist is that those who aren't racist say wait and be patient and eventually everyone will realize that we're all the same. While the anti-racist knows that change will not happen unless we make it happen by holding people accountable to change now. Dr. King famously said, justice delayed is almost always justice denied. And he was asked to wait on many occasions by those who claimed to be not racist. One of the most famous times was from a group of eight white clergy in Alabama who wrote a letter to King while he was in jail during the Birmingham campaign and asked him to stop pushing so much and to instead be patient because he was causing too much trouble. Dr. King recognized the importance of this opportunity to explain his views and appeal to these men of the cloth to interfaith collaboration for justice and right and wrote a response known as a letter from a Birmingham jail that not only responds to them in the loving and peaceful tone of interfaith collaboration, but also in the staunch, accountable, action-oriented tone of justice and righteousness. So in the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in his view on the true goal of education, we begin the process of educating our audience today by focusing on erasing ignorance about racism and hate. Building intelligence in the form of knowledge and capability in understanding anti-racism and developing the character in the form of confidence, resolve, and determination to act on the knowledge and capability we build to eradicate racism and spread anti-racism. We will start this focus by helping people transform with a book club study event of one of the most powerful pieces of literature ever written, word for word, or in boxing terms, pound for pound, on appealing for the fierce urgency of anti-racism transformation now, a letter from a Birmingham jail. This is a historic event for ARC, as it is the very first event of its kind for our organization. It's a four-part series that will be facilitated by Pastor Dean J. Seal, a true soldier of interfaith collaboration and racial and social justice, as well as an ever-learning and admiring student of Dr. King's teachings. Pastor Dean joins us on this episode of the Ark of Change and discusses the importance of anti-racism to the future of the United States, the role of interfaith collaboration, Dr. King's influence, and provides a preview to a letter from a Birmingham jail book club event. All of this is coming right up for you in our next two segments, starting right after this quick break. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. 
visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC and join our movement. All right, welcome back to the Ark of Change with Donzo Leggett. We're here with Pastor Dean J. Seal. He's a special guest on our show today. I talked a little bit about Pastor Dean earlier, but now I'd like Pastor Dean to tell you a little bit about himself. Welcome, Pastor Dean. Thanks for having me, Donzo. You know, you and I have known each other for a while, and you have a very unique background and story of how you came into the clergy. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you did prior and then what led you to be a man of the word? Sure. I'm kind of a latecomer to the ministry. Uh, I grew up in the white suburbs of Minneapolis. Uh, I was listening to rock and roll as a kid, the Beatles and the, the Rolling Stones, but especially Jimi Hendrix. Uh, but back then, music had meaning. It had a cultural impact. It was uh, how the anti-war movement uh, you know, built through the country. So um, we were very much tied into uh, how um, we had to try to find a way to have an impact on changing the country to make it a better place. I had a brother with some disabilities, mental and, and physical, and so we we knew that there had to be a, a sense of care for people with uh, vulnerabilities and that you couldn't just uh, kick them to the side of the road. So we grew up Democratic. We grew up as Democrats. Um, in my 20s, I got into uh, singing funny songs with my friend Rob Elk, and we ended up forming a comedy pair called Mr. Elk and Mr. Seal. We wrote funny songs, and, uh, mostly at Dudley Riggs, which was the same place that Al Franken came out of. Uh, then we moved to New York City, and we did comedy in the New York clubs like... Uh, uh, the uh, Country Rising Star, and then we performed with Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld and John Stewart. And that was when comedy was really coming up. So we got on MTV, we were on the Comedy Channel on the first day it started, which became Comedy Central. Wow. We, got an H, we, got, we got an HBO pilot that we shot at Paisley Park. It was a big, fat bomb. <laughs> uh, and then when I went to uh, the seminary, I was writing for the Prairie Home Companion. Uh, before that, I actually, I, went, I was uh, uh, managing the Bryant Lake Bowl Cabaret Theater, a nightclub on Lake Street, and then uh, the Minnesota Fringe Theater Festival. But I grew up in a Lutheran family. Uh, they were liberal ALC. Uh, they were into civil rights, and one of my relatives was a Lutheran pastor, Sidney Anders Rand. He was president of St. Olaf College. He ended up being... Uh, ambassador to Norway. And he said to my mom, if you want to know what an Old Testament prophet looks like, look to Dr. King. Okay. So what does a prophet mean? It's not somebody who can predict the future like a, like some magic thing. It's someone who sees what's going on. So like uh, the Old Testament prophets were the ones who went up to the king and said, you're screwing up. You have to change. This is bad. Mm. And, and sometimes they get killed for that. Uh, but they spoke truth to power. That's the tradition. So uh, uh, at, at a certain point, I realized that uh, Dr. King meant more to me than uh, uh, comedy or showbiz. So I decided to go into the seminary. Wow. I came out of the theater. There was a, a thing called a, a Master of Arts in Theology and the Arts. You know, a, a big chunk of the Bible is storytelling. Jesus was a famous storyteller. 
you know, his greatest hits are the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. Everyone knows those two stories. You mm-hmm. don't have to be a Christian. That's right. Uh, but, but those are, those are, uh, stories carry meaning. And a good church service is just like a good theater production. Uh, it's an event that you organize to carry meaning to the, your uh, congregation or your audience. So, uh, I wanted to go, you know, and, and theater comes out of the church. Right. So uh, I was in the uh, Presbyterian Church, which has a focus on education and also has no bishops, uh, which is a, a great decentralizing thing. And the, with the liberal Presbyterians were the uh, uh, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, and we ordain women and we ordain gay people, LGBTQIA, and we give them communion and we marry them. Mm-hmm. That's where I want to be. And uh, so... Uh, for about 11 years, I taught religion at Oxford University part-time after I got my uh, Master Divinity. And uh, uh, I also started a nonprofit called Spirit in the House, mm-hmm. which uh, organized educational events, uh, play productions, storytelling, um, seminars, art exhibits that dealt with uh, interfaith stuff. So... Uh, uh, the nonprofit never found its financial footing. So then, when the opportunity came to uh, apply for uh, a, a job as a pastor, you know, you go to if you go to a call and see if it works. Uh, the only one that wanted to hire me was the only one where I wanted to work, and that was the Shepherd of the Hill, because <laughs> they were very socially active. They were involved in uh, uh, housing issues. They're putting letting homeless people sleep in their church for a week at a time with other churches. And uh, uh, they wanted to, it was a cute thing, they they wanted to get a rainbow flag, but they didn't know where to get one. Well, wow. I knew where to get one, because I'd worked with a lot of gay performers, sure. and there was this really great store that sold boat flags, right? So uh, we hit it off. Um, and uh, the, uh, oh, let's see now, where should I go from there? Well, this idea of, of Shepherd of the Hill. So it's great. It's really great to hear the, the background of how you ended up there that, I mean, obviously they've got this, this vision of, of trying to stand for, for the right types of things and social justice. And, and that's what Absolutely. you want it to be about. Uh, but, but it is, I mean, you live in Minneapolis, if I'm not mistaken, and, and Chaska is where Shepherd of the Hill is. Uh, yeah. it's kind of out in, in, in the, in the, you know, what used to be the sticks. Uh, you know, now yeah. it's a little bit more developed. Out here, yeah. but it's still an area that that traditionally has known to be very conservative. So, making the the drive out to Chaska is, is that sort of a pilgrimage to you to kind of educate and, and continue to help fuel this this uh, socially conscious church. Well, yes and no. It's a it's about a twenty minute drive. And I, I used to be a chaplain in the hospital in St. Paul, and that was a twenty minute drive. I used to be a youth minister in Northeast, that was a twenty minute drive. So the the distance isn't that thing, but isn't that big a deal? But it is. I knew when I was going into it that I'm I'm uh, being uh, going to be with a progressive church in a very conservative area. It's it's been it's been Republican since Abraham Lincoln. Okay, mm-hmm. so but I also know that there was a lot of it was turning into a suburb. Now I grew up in Hopkins, which uh, started as a small town, and by the time I was growing up in it, it was becoming a suburb. So I'd seen how that works, and so uh, you know they drove, they made the freeway come out there, two twelve. So there's going to be more and more uh, uh, bedroom uh, commuters, 
and they're building, you know, nice houses for these guys. They're building uh, uh, factories for electronics. So there's going to be a greater population of uh, more urbanized people who want to live out in the kind of the countryside. And Chaska had been the county seat of a farm community for a long time. You know, when when uh, our church still has a farmer, we still had a couple of farmers when I came aboard. So, uh, but this was exactly what I wanted to do. The, you know, in, in the Presbyterian Church, uh, we're called pastors, but the technical term for us is teaching elders. Mm, Our goal is okay. to teach. Okay. And I've been a teacher. My my mom was a teacher. My brothers are teachers. My grandmother used to be a teacher riding a horse onto the prairie, teaching a one-room schoolhouse. So it's kind of like the family business. And I thought, we can serve an educational uh uh, role in this community so we can have an impact just by being there we have a rainbow flag up and we got an email from a mom once who said you know uh we go to an evangelical church and my daughter's gay and she's come out to me but she can't come out to her friends at church and we drive by your church when we're going over there and she said uh mom it makes me it, it makes me really happy to see that rainbow flag up because then i know someday uh I'll find a church that loves that loves me that will accept me for who I am, and uh, um, we yes. sent her back a thing that said uh, we will love her for who she is. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we we have an impact just by being there. We don't have to convert everybody to be Presbyterians. We we just our role model is it gives us a, a you know a punching weight far above our weight class. Yeah, you know it, it's um it's really great to hear you. Talk about that story, that wonderful story um, about the rainbow flag and its impact. And, you know, I, I've been going to the church now for over three years and yeah. you know, I've heard you preach about anti-racism and anti-hate many times. It seems like almost every message that you give or lesson, like you said, you're a teacher, um, almost mm-hmm. every message or lesson that you give um, seems to be centered in some way or work in a message around or lesson around um, anti-racism, anti-hate, the prevalence of hate still in our society and that we need to do something about it. So there's always a call to action at the end. Why is this so important to you that almost every time you speak, you work these messages in? Well, uh, it's, it's a, it seems habitual a little bit, number one, because uh, every month I dedicate one Sunday, the third Sunday, to uh, something that Dr. King wrote. Uh, first, I did the letter from a Birmingham jail, a piece at a time. And that took about a year and a half. And then I was working through the uh, the Radical King, which was uh, edited by Cornell West. And we're, I'm doing a chapter at a time. That's take about 20 weeks. So uh, plus, uh, there's always good stuff. And uh, I, I really believe that the uh, – really what I've learned is uh, – I'm writing a dissertation on this. It's called The Black Social Gospel for the White Church. <laughs> yes. If we want the white church to be relevant, we have to have the same kind of powerhouse imagination that the black church does and the black social gospel does, which is it embraces the pain of being uh, Americans mm-hmm. with our painful history and then says, okay, now what are we going to do about it? So uh, – uh, and I write those sermons as much for me as for anybody else. I'm processing what I'm learning, and I'm sharing what I'm learning, and I'm saying we as a community have to move forward on this. 
because, uh, as you know, there's racial tensions in Chaska. Yep. There were uh, problems with the high school, and one of the kids wanted to put up a poster of Malcolm X. Yep. And they said, oh, no, that's too controversial. <laughs> and I, I'm going, you know, I read, the, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was in ninth grade, and we knew he was a historical figure in the United States. But apparently the uh, principal of the Chaska High School doesn't know that. Right. So there's this gigantic gap in, in what his education should be, mm-hmm. from my point of view, and where it is. So we have to be the ones who go, you know what, no, 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 you, you should read that book. It's great. Uh, and and so we want to – and it's not, it's not an alien thing uh, for uh, the white church to embrace the cool parts of the Jewish – the Hebrew Bible, and then the New Testament, because those are the things that allowed the black church to survive, and the Hebrew Bible is, is the thing that empowered the Jews to survive. So this has got really meaty material in it to help us get through, for example, this uh, uh, pandemic we're in, but then also to move forward and change the church so that we can be of a, a benefit to the community. Thanks a lot, Pastor Dean. That was, uh, that was excellent. I, I really, again, love your passion um, in terms of explaining uh, your focus. And um, you mentioned something earlier that I want to go back to, and it's specific to interfaith. You know, at ARC, we have five uh, core values. And and these values are based on the fact that we want to send a very strong message that everyone and anyone is welcome to join ARC. And the fifth of these values is that all religions are welcome to join ARC. Whether you're Muslim, uh, Christian, whether you are Hindu or agnostic, it doesn't matter. Everyone is welcome, no matter what your religion is, as long as your religion does not overtake our core value and purpose to eradicate racism and hate and spread anti-racism. We want ARC members to always view religion through the lens of anti-racism. So as again, I've heard you speak about uh, earlier, you said, hey, I'm a Presbyterian minister, but I'm not here to preach Presbyterianism. I've heard you talk about the importance of interfaith collaboration. And I was wanting you to explain why interfaith collaboration is so important in the mission of eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Yeah, I think uh, the easiest example of uh, interfaith work is, you know, we have uh one of our missions is families moving forward where uh, when there's no pandemic, uh, homeless families will sleep in our church and uh, for a week and then move on to another church and another church until they can find a place to live. So while they're experiencing homelessness, uh, we try to get them out of sleeping in their car and we feed them dinner and breakfast so they can save up some money. A lot of them just need a down payment, but those, when they're there, uh, there need to be like uh, three or four people to keep an eye on them, to help them answer questions. We train them in with uh, helping to keep track of their money. And we ask for volunteers from everywhere. We ask for them from other churches. We, we ask for them from – there's uh, some um, uh, Islamic uh, mosques who chip in in Minneapolis. Uh, and, uh, I, I, and some of the best volunteers we've ever had have been atheists. There's some very strong ethical atheists out there, and I'm happy to have them. So, uh, the you know, and part of this is also the, working with other Christian groups. There's there's things I'm 
very, I'm very unhappy with the Catholics about not ordaining women and several other things. So what I say is I love Catholics and I have problems with the Romans, right? <laughs> uh, so I have problems with how they run things, but I have no problem with Catholic volunteers. They're, they got this beautiful Catholic love thing <laughs> where they just, they just love people. And I, I'm happy to be around that. But uh, I was ordained to interfaith work. Uh, Presbyterians uh, uh, are are uh, we're, uh, Presbyterianism is a means of organizing yourself. We organize ourselves by uh, by uh, uh, the church is run by elders, and the mm-hmm. Greek word for that is presbyteros. Okay, okay. So uh, that's we what we don't have is uh, is bishops who are telling us what to believe. We have a, a great deal of freedom of conscience. So in other words, when I joined the Presbyterian Church, they didn't ordain gay people. And I said, that has to change. And they said, come on board and let's change it. So that's what happened. So uh, the thing about interfaith work, though, is that Dr. King was an interfaith guy. He worked with Gandhi to get uh, nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And Gandhi was a fan of Jesus uh, because uh, Gandhi pointed out, as, as other people have pointed out, every religion in the world says, uh, love your neighbor. But only Jesus says, love your enemy. Yes. Okay, so that's a cut above. And that's something where I go, okay, that's hard. And and, and, uh, Dr. King said, uh, took it another step. This is what really caught my attention. Dr. King said, we must love the racist. And I went, okay. (laughs) Wow. Uh, How how do I do that? Mm -hmm. And I didn't get it right away. I knew where he got it. Right. But I didn't get it. And then later on, I read where he says, we must love the racist because racism is bad for them. So if we can love the racist and understand that uh, it's it's bad for them, then we can show them some mercy and show them some compassion and understand their pain that they're experiencing by being scared of people who are not the same as them. And so by understanding um, how this Jesus thing can can ring through to all other traditions. Loving your enemy doesn't have to be a, just a Jesus thing. It's also a Hindu thing. It's also a, a Buddhist thing if people grab onto it. So uh, I ran a, my nonprofit was about uh, exploring things. I think the biggest thing I did was about two years on forgiveness. So we had, we explored forgiveness in every different tradition and or the different traditions we encountered. So. Uh, Forgiveness is something that every tradition has something uh, interesting to contribute. Uh, so you can like go into any tra- any situation where you're talking to people from other traditions, and you go, "What do you guys say about forgiveness?" And you can have a conversation. So, like uh, Christianity and Buddhism have a lot in common. There are some people who think that uh, uh, Jesus might have studied with Buddhists in the in the missing years, mm. but. Uh, there's this great quote from the Buddha, because because if you don't forgive, then you're you're holding a grudge, right? Right. So yeah. there's a couple of quotes from the Buddha. One of them is, "Holding a grudge is like holding a hot coal in your hand that you're going to throw at the guy you're mad at the next time you see him." Mm. So who's getting burned? <laughs> and then the other one was, uh, "Holding a grudge is like drinking rat poison and expecting the rat to die." <laughs> Now, I don't know if the Buddhists said that, but Buddhists say that. Mm-hmm. So 
that's that's about this very clear thing, uh, which Bonagastasen talks about, which is that forgiveness is not about saying that what happened is okay. This bad thing that happened, it's not okay. But what it does mean is that we're going to stop torturing ourselves by turning ourselves over to hate and anger. Uh, and that's a restorative thing that we can do for ourselves. So in forgiving, we're, we're, we're doing a healing thing for us. That's who it's for. And so you find these things uh, in, in any conversation with different people from different faiths. It's fascinating and it's useful. It's, I'm a pragmatic guy. I want things that we can use to heal ourselves and to uh, uh, heal our relationships with other people. You know, one great description of it is from the punk uh, tattooed reverend from the Lutherans, uh, Nadia Boltz Weber. She's like six foot two and has long arms full of tattoos. And she calls herself a Christocentric universalist, wow. which means she she uh, has a universalist understanding that every tradition has something to offer. Uh, but she's a Jesus-centered person, and that's how I think of myself. Like, Jesus is my main man, uh, because uh, all, faiths, all faiths do tell you to love your neighbor, but Jesus says love your enemy. And one of the phrases that comes up in interfaith work is... Uh, uh, many paths up the same mountain. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Pastor Dean J. Seal. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. Welcome back to the Ark of Change. We are here with Pastor Dean J. Seal of Shepherd of the Hill Church of Chaska. And we're going to continue the wonderful conversation we're having with Pastor Dean. And the next thing I'd like to, to ask you about, Pastor Dean, obviously, we just had a, a very historic uh, election, but also one that's extremely divisive. Um, I'd like you to just talk about from your perspective um, the direct link between racism and hate and the deepening divisions that we've seen here in the United States of America and the, and the threat that it poses to our democracy and relatedly to the instability in the world. And in your view, from what you know of ARC, you know, how does the ARC vision, what role does it have to play in eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism what role does that have potentially the future of this country? Well, it's it's. Uh, I think what we're experiencing is uh, understanding that history uh, isn't about the past. Uh, history is about now, and we're making a history now. And a lot of what is, uh, I, I think Faulkner said, uh, history, uh, the past isn't over. It isn't even past. So what we're seeing now are echoes of the Civil War, where after... Uh, the the, uh, the enslaved people were liberated. That meant that the slave owners in the South lost three and a half billion dollars worth of money in uh, 1863, and they've been uh, trying to get it back ever since. So the way to do that, there was a I'm a, I'm a huge history fan, especially about the American Civil War, and uh, there was a, a Virginia planter who said, look. Uh, it's too bad we can't buy them and sell them like we used to. Mm. But but uh, if we can uh, if we can control their labor, we can still make money. 
And if and if we can uh, deny them the vote, we can control their labor. So voter suppression started really in 1868, uh, and has been uh, they've been very successful at it for a long time. Now, uh, for a lot of people like myself who grew up uh, in the North, I didn't meet a black person until I was 18 years old. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, that was the guy I met at college. We said hi over the Coke machine, mm-hmm. but uh, there weren't any night. There was one black guy in my high school who graduated before I got there that just for a lot of us white people there's just no experience and if you don't have an experience with people you can be afraid of them people are afraid of gay people till they meet a gay person people are afraid of black people they meet a black person people are afraid they'll say the wrong thing they're afraid people will they're they're afraid that the black people will be as racist to us as we are to them. Mm. Uh, and uh, generally, in my experience, uh, the black people have been outclassing us. I, I remember when I was eight years old watching the, the marches in Birmingham, and uh, the, the white people are banging them with, with clubs and hosing them down, and the, and the uh, black people were not resisting. And it really registered. It really registered. Hmm. That they're above this kind of terrible thing. So uh, a lot of what has to happen is, uh, you know, James Baldwin said we should we should also have not just a Black History Month but a White History Month, hmm. where we teach white hmm. history and we teach these things like the uh, the destruction of uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Yes. Three, you know, like what was it? Six hundred people got killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and teach that as the history of white people so that we understand that as part of our history. Um, so uh, the goal here is going to be slow and steady. You know, as, as Dr. King said, we got some difficult days ahead. And uh, I'm on the, uh, uh, the anti-racism task force for the Presbytery, which is a regional body around the Twin Cities, about 70 Presbyterian churches. And there's about eight of us who are on the anti-racism task force, uh, which is to do what we can as a mostly white church to uh, uh, bring us up to date on how we can be anti-racism and how we practice as a church. Now, the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, and one of the things I would brag about is that after the Civil War, uh, they sent a bunch of uh, teachers uh, and pastors down to the South to teach formerly enslaved people how to read. Because reading was illegal for them. You could, if they found out you could read, they'd kill you. Mm-hmm. So they taught them how to read, and there's a whole bunch of black Presbyterians in the South. Uh, so that's one of the things we're proud of. So uh, we're an educational organization with a spiritual core. And what we want to do is teach people about uh, anti-racism, teach people about American history. And there's guys uh, who are against that. Glenn Beck, I, you know, every once in a while when I'm driving to work, I listen to uh, AM radio, mm. and Glenn Beck uh, said they want to teach, they want to make white people feel bad about themselves. And I go, no, 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 no. We want to teach you what happened, and if it makes you feel bad, that's because you're understanding it. Right. That's not because you're a bad person. It's because these bad things happened. And one of the things the Native Americans say is, look, we don't blame you for how many people, how many Indians got killed. We do blame you for denying that it happened, mm. right? So it's like it's like uh, Holocaust deniers. Yes. When we have our own Holocaust, we have the Holocaust of uh, 
80 million Native Americans, 60 million African Americans. Uh, and we got to understand that that's how the country was built. Mm -hmm. And then we can move on from that if we accept that. So uh, that's what I get from you guys doing. Thank you. That's, that's very, very clear. And, you know, I, I've also, you know, I gave a, on one of the last podcasts I, I gave, I talked a little bit about the, this fallacy that, um, that segregation doesn't exist anymore. And the fact that the United States in, in many cases is more segregated than it was, um, yep. you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, one case in point is, is churches, you know, Christian yep. churches in the United States for the most part are very, very segregated. There's the black church and there's the white church. And I've heard you preach on numerous occasions, um, you know, not only about the black church's role in leadership, and you've talked about Dr. King, and we'll talk about him a little bit more, but you also talked about what the role of the white church should be and where you're disappointed in in, in the lack of, of action and, and stepping up against racism and hate. Can you talk a little bit about what your your thoughts are about today's white church and what you'd like to see change? Yeah, I want to go back on, on that and kind of challenge Dr. King a little bit because he's the one who made famous the line, the most segregated hour of, uh, in America mm -hmm. is uh, noon on Sundays. Um, uh, there's a lot of segregation now, but I think my experience with talking to black folk is that they want to go to a black church. They they want to go to a place. One, one, I remember one guy saying, I want to go where it's just us. You know, they want to have a community center where the black community gets to be black, where being black isn't so obvious. They're not the only black people in the room. So uh, it's it's a mixed bag. It's partially that it's hard for white people to uh, go to black churches and feel welcome. It's hard for black people to go to some white churches and feel welcome. Uh, my home church, Westminster, had a community of an uh, 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 active community of African-Americans, but also American-Africans. There were a mm. bunch of people from Ghana. Yeah. Uh, and they ended up uh, just spinning off and going to their own church because uh, there just wasn't a mix. There was, yeah. there was, they were present, but it was, they, weren't, they didn't feel comfortable uh, being you know, a part of moving into a, what's basically a white church. Yeah. But uh, to put it in the second context, it's you know, Dr. King was a, a phenom. He was a he was an educational uh, wonder boy. He, he went into college when he was fifteen. He had a PhD when he was twenty two. Most people get it, but you know, by the twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, he was running a church by the time he was twenty six. And 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 the uh, Birmingham bus strike just landed on his head. Mm. But he he knew all the theologians. Uh, from Europe and all the theologians working in the United States and he spells out in plain English where we should go, how the church needs to be an activist church but the white church primarily, and this is one of my frustrations with the white church is that they kind of pulled back into being a thing about your own salvation you should be petrified whether you're going to hell or not, mm -hmm. so you're worried about your own salvation all the time mm -hmm. it's not what it's about Jesus does not say, you better behave or you're going to hell. He says, uh, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, uh, uh, tend to the sick, visit the prisons. He's all about doing stuff. So if the, if the church isn't doing that stuff, it doesn't have your participation in it is, 
it boils down to being this meaningless self-indulgence and a form of escapism from the problems of the world. Yes. So uh, Dr. King started to realize that for the most part, with some exceptions, the white church let him down. And that led to, you know, his last couple of years, he was pretty depressed. Because yep. he was going, you know, it's all right here. It's all right here. Mm-hmm. And so my, my, my understanding is that the white church just didn't understand that this black guy has much better stuff than anything coming out of Europe. Hmm. So that's that's the angle I take is no 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 no. Remember Jimi Hendrix? Remember Michael Jordan? Remember uh, uh, Hank Aaron? Okay, some of these black guys have got better stuff than any of the white guys. So we have to acknowledge that with Dr. King. Now, I'm a huge fan of him because he was a pastor theologian. He used to write his sermons for anybody who walks in the door. Okay, I've dealt with. Uh, theologians on the graduate level where people can talk to me for three minutes and I do not understand a thing they're saying Hmm. because it's in such elevated uh, academic language that it moves it out of the out of the floor of the church room out of the floor of the sanctuary Mm -hmm. and I want stuff that anybody can get Uh, and Dr. King makes it so I can get it and that's why when I talk about Dr. King anybody gets what I'm saying yeah, I mean that, that's that's the thing that I think so many leaders um, don't understand, or those who are in positions of leadership is it's not always just what you say; it's how you say it, and can you say it in a way that the audience can understand? And yeah. uh, I agree with you that that was a special gift of Dr. King's to say things in a way that everyone could understand and everyone could have an emotional attachment to it and be inspired. Um, yeah, and well, I spent a lot of time in showbiz and in comedy, and if you tell a joke that nobody laughs at, it's not the audience's fault, right? Right. So uh, when I'm when I'm writing, I have to write it so that I make sure people understand what the that the who is the listener understands. That's who I'm writing for. Right on. And speaking of Dr. King, obviously um, we have our first Arc Book Club event. Uh, this yeah. is going to be a fantastic event. It's going to be starting on this upcoming Tuesday, November 24th. And it will be on a letter from a Birmingham jail. And it will be yeah. facilitated by none other than Pastor Dean J. Seal. So, Dean, tell us a little bit about uh, your history with this masterpiece and describe what people can expect from this event. Well, I don't remember when I first bumped into it. I think it was when I started teaching. Uh, and there was the religion classes uh, dealt a lot with the civil rights movement. There's a book called uh, uh, God's Long Summer, which is about five Christians who were involved in the uh, civil rights movement. And one is a Klan's member, and one is a Baptist preacher who says that the Bible says nothing about social justice. Hmm. But they are both Christians. So the letter from a Birmingham jail came up as like this this instigator, which is, if anything had any impact on the white church, it was this letter. Okay, so the, it's, it's the perfect selection to start a book club because it is short. It's, uh, what, 30 pages. You could read it in probably half an hour. But I started every class for in 11 years of teaching religion. I started every class with a line-by-line reading. And it, the thing is, is that it's so dense and so rich, uh, it takes three hours. It takes three hours to read it and take it apart and unpack it. And it's loaded with beautiful stuff. It fills you in on what history is about. There's new words. 
that uh, it broadens people's vocabulary. When when I uh, I would start talking about it in class, and I'd say, "Who's read this before?" And if there might be three or four hands, and I'd say, "Where did you hear it?" And one of them would be in a civil rights class, and uh, the other three would be we read it in business class because it's used as the best example of how to make a convincing argument. So it's just beautiful writing. And then every once in a while you hear the voice of Dr. King saying, Sanctimonious Trivialities. <laughs> and you just, you just know exactly who you're listening to. Yes. So it's, it's a powerful thing. This, it, for me, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a reading that gives you a transformational experience. It lifts you up. Uh, it tells you what the difference between a just law and an unjust law is. And I tell I told my students I don't care if you believe in God. This is about what justice is. You know, justice does not exist in nature. We have to create it. Mm-hmm. And Dr. King said a just law lifts people up, and an unjust law pushes people down. And segregation is the example of an unjust law, and that's what he was there to do. And when they when they uh, when he came into town and they told him he should uh, quit demonstrating because it made all the racists mad. He said, they call him an outsider, and he said, uh, you know, aside from the fact I'm an American citizen, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. And so the goal is this motivates you to understand that if there is injustice, we have to go and do something about it. If there's an unjust law, we have to break that law, okay? And I thought, oh, this is cool, right? This goes right back into my... uh, anti-Vietnam days. And Dr. King came out against the war in Vietnam because it was an unjust situation. Uh, Number one, uh, black people were being drafted at a higher rate than white people because white people could get out of it by going to college. Uh, And number two, we shouldn't be in Vietnam anyway. It was an unjust war. Uh, And as time goes on, we understand how much of an unjust war that was. And guess what? We killed three million Vietnamese and so we have to understand that when that stuff is happening we have to take action uh, because uh, if you care about justice and if you care about uh, having a country that you're proud of when it does stuff you're not proud of you have to take a step to uh, move against it yeah that um, I think many many folks you know haven't really been exposed to the eloquent and powerful writing of Dr. King. You know, the, yeah. the, the only downside or one of the downsides of the I Have a Dream speech has been played so many times yeah. that many people think that's all that Dr. King ever said, that he ever did, yeah. that he ever wrote. And, uh, you know, I, th- the first time I was really exposed to the letter from Birmingham jail was in the, in the, in the small class that you held for us say, at church. And my yeah. wife and I participated, and, and uh, we both were astonished and amazed yeah. that we had never read it before, how rich it was. And, you know, for a, a book of less than 70 pages, um, you know, it really, um, every single sentence has power. I mean, yeah, for a book of less than 70 pages, it's, it's it has the, the content of 700 pages. It's so yeah. powerful. And and I love the, the, the comment you made earlier about, how this was maybe a, a, a dissertation or a perfect example on how to influence, how to make an argument. Um, and, yeah. and, and that's how I took it, uh, is this, this was a great example that if I wanted to help drive change, 
you know, this this is the way to do it. Yeah, and it's also got, you know, more practical stuff, the whole process of, of uh, setting up a, a direct action campaign. Yes. Which is what the nonviolent protests were about. He spells out the process. And the first thing you do is sit down and think about what's going on and figure out what we should do. And then if uh, you do some negotiating, and if the negotiating doesn't doesn't work out, then you take action. Then you uh, uh, hold your protests. You block up the streets. You fill up the jails. Uh, and he spells all that out, the whole process of what it was. And, and what you've realized is that this is a whole righteous project. This is a, a, a way by which people can take their spiritual beliefs and uh, take action to, to broaden the kingdom of God, the realm of God. John Lewis said uh, uh, when they when the uh, police baton hit his skull and cracked his skull, he said, I feel like I've entered the realm of God. Mm. So if you want to have meaning in your life, this this lays out how you can look for that and how you can make that happen. Fantastic. Dean, if there's one message you want to leave our listeners with, what would it be? Oh, that's an easy question. Uh, but uh, I think I can just say uh, that love is the most powerful force in the universe. Uh, it's the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. And what the spiritual power of love is uh, spelled out by Dr. King in this piece, and we're going to have to love our enemies to turn them into friends. And this is the starting place for that. You know, there's like 14 great anti-racism books out now. I bought three of them, and I've read one of them, and it was hard, it was hard for me to read that just because I'm hard-pressed for time. But in this one book, you start there, and you can take it from there. And that's what this is about, that, that uh, Dr. King gave us the path, and we just have to study him and follow him. And in fact, that's what uh, Coretta Scott King said. She said, just read his books. Thank you, Pastor Dean. This has been just fantastic uh, for our listeners and for me. Every time I speak to you, I learn something. I'm very excited to do it, and I want to tell people, bring your bring your teenagers, bring your 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds. They're smart, and uh, th- this will give them something to bite down on. But uh, I couldn't be more excited to be doing this. I'm a huge fan of you and your family and the work you do in Chaska, and uh, the fact that your wife was called a communist just kind of polishes your, your uh, bona fides. Uh, because uh, I think what you're doing with this project is great, and I'm really pleased and honored to be asked to help. All right. Thank you so much, Pastor Dean. We'll say goodbye to Pastor Dean, and I'll be right back after a short break to close out this episode. Thank you, Pastor Dean. Thank you. The Ark of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC and join our movement. That was a great discussion with Pastor Dean J. Seal. We discussed anti-racism and its critically important role on the future of the United States and the world. We also discussed the important role of interfaith collaboration in eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. And finally, we discussed the influence of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we preview the upcoming ARC first ever book club event, the four-part series 
a letter from a Birmingham jail facilitated by Pastor Dean J. Seal. As mentioned earlier, my wife and I attended this session before with Pastor Dean. It was truly enlightening, powerful, inspirational, engaging, and entertaining. There's a reason why this is the first historic book club event for the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. It will be an absolute delight. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or Arc, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. Again, please don't forget to join the first ever Arc Book Club event, A Letter from a Birmingham Jail with Pastor Dean J. Seal, a four-part series starting at 7 p.m. Central on Tuesday, November 24th. Again, for more information, visit us at joinarc.org. I greatly look forward to our next episode and another opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Until next time, have a happy and a safe Thanksgiving and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.